See, we in our culture sometimes sanitize death. We try to make death something it's not, so we bury people in private places, in beautiful cemeteries where everything's neatly kept, and we don't talk about it. We keep people at a distance in somebody else's job. It's their job to care for the dead. We just grieve. But unfortunately, I think when we do this, we create a picture of what death is that's not true. We think death is just a good next step part of the journey, part of the process. We think death is natural and we should all just know it is what it is, but death is not natural. We were not made to die. We were made to have life and life to the full and life everlasting. It's only in the reality of this broken world that sin exists. Not just your sin, but also mine and all of ours. Our sin still reigns, and because of that, death still happens. Hi, this is Chris from The Point, a church where you can come as you are and you can text in your questions. You may not be sure what you believe about God, Jesus, faith, or the Bible, and that's okay. Because faith is not about having it all figured out, and God is not waiting for you to put your life together before He'll connect with you. If you'd like to find out more about The Point, you can visit our website at thepointknox.com or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at The Point Knox. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are. Before I went to seminary, I had the joy of working at a church. <laughs> was not prepared for that this morning. All right, I'm going to have a, sh- a short stand today. Unless Steve can fix it. Steve knows the answers. All right, I'm going to have a moving stand today. Hey, thanks, Steve. Excellent. Thank you, Steve, for coming to the rescue. Well, before I had the joy of being here with stands that are too complicated for me, I had the joy of working at a church in Omaha, Nebraska, a pretty large church. And what I find in working in large churches, one of the nice things is you only have one job and one job only, as opposed to here where there's a lot of jobs and they change each week. But they gave me the fun job, or so they told me. I was responsible for teaching about 150 junior high students. Yeah, it'll be fun, it'll be easy, there'll be lots of food, we promise. And they didn't tell me about any of the rest. And part of my job in teaching these students was something called confirmation. And if you're not familiar with what confirmation is, confirmation is something that some churches do and church bodies do to teach the basics, the foundations of our faith to students, Uh, usually junior high, sometimes high school age, but even adults in some churches can be confirmed. The idea is if you've been baptized and God has given you this really good gift of faith and forgiveness, somebody should teach you what that gift is and what you do with it. And so part of our confirmation process, we would have a couple of years with the kids and we'd teach them all kinds of stuff about the Bible, about faith, about life. And then at the end, we would ask them a series of questions. If you grew up in a Lutheran church, you know how terrifying that can be. 
See, in most Lutheran churches, the kids would stand in front of the whole church on a Sunday and be asked all kinds of questions of theology that they had to have memorized in front of everybody. If that was your experience, I'm sorry. We decided for 150 kids, one, that'll take too long, and two, whew, that's terrifying. How about we'll just do some little video recordings of them sharing a brief testimony, something they learned or something that meant a lot to them. And part of that is we always ask them to share one memory verse. All of the Bible, find one verse that means something to you and memorize it and then share it. And why did you choose that verse? And almost every single year, without fail, some kids somewhere got the bright idea, if I just choose the shortest verse, it'll be the easiest. So here it is. You want to memorize a verse of scripture today? John chapter 11, verse 35, Jesus wept. There you go. And every time a kid came in to do their little video and said, my verse is John chapter 11, I immediately was like, oh no. (laughs) 35, Jesus wept. I did it. I memorized it. What does that mean for you? And most of the time, they weren't really sure. Uh, Jesus had feelings. Okay. So what? What? Most of the time, it was like, well, I just chose this verse because it was easy to memorize. Good work. But the older I get, the more profound these two words become to me. Jesus wept. So today, as we begin our series called Weep No More, we're going to look at these words. And not just these two words, but the story before and after. In this series of Weep No More, we're going to be exploring grief. What is grief in our human condition as we relate to grief? Where do we find comfort and hope and healing? If you're interested in reading more, these words of Jesus, Jesus wept. These two simple words, they're found in John chapter 11. And you can choose to go on to thepointknox.com and you can find the whole chapter there. You can find it in a Bible app. We're just going to pick a few verses. But if you want to go through and dive into this story even more in depth, uh, John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. And I figured some of you are already thinking about lunch, so I didn't want to go through all 44 verses this morning. Just a few. Jesus wept. So what? So here we go. We're going to begin in chapter 11, verse 1. It's a good place to start. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. John is the only gospel to record this story of Lazarus. He's the only one and second only to the Holy Week and the week of Jesus' death and resurrection, second only to Easter and everything leading up to it. This is the longest continual narrative in the story of John. So for John, this story is really, really important. It begins just telling us a simple detail. There was a man who was sick. He was the brother of Mary and Martha. 
If you've read scripture, maybe you've heard of Mary and Martha before, two sisters who often spent time with Jesus, and they were close to him. They had him over, and they fed him. And Martha was really busy trying to do all the work to make it just the perfect scenario, and Mary just sat to listen. And there's this whole back and forth about which one's greater while Mary choosing to be with Jesus. That's the greater thing. So John, he begins by saying, these two women who Jesus knew and loved very deeply, their brother was sick. Now, if you've read any of the Gospel of John or the other Gospels, this should maybe be a warning. Something's about to happen. Because most of the time, when they tell of somebody who's sick, what does Jesus do? He heals them. In fact, time and time again, when somebody's sick, Jesus heals them. Sometimes he simply speaks, and from a distance they're healed. Sometimes he goes to them, and he lays his hands on them. Sometimes he spits in the mud and rubs that mud on their eyes. Super weird dude, right? But often, when somebody is sick, Jesus made it better. So that's what we're set up to hope for in this story. Now they come, and they they tell him that he's sick, And says this in verse five. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? Right off the bat as you're reading this story, Jesus does something unexpected and maybe a little unnerving. See, Jesus here, here, he healed He hears, I'll get my words eventually, Jesus hears just how sick Lazarus is, and rather than making it a priority, rather than going immediately, rather than stopping everything for his friend, he waits for two days. As we find out here in just a moment, Lazarus was two days' journey away. What was Jesus doing? We don't really know. But there's one thing about grief, those words Jesus wept, that I think stands out to me in this little moment. God's ways and God's timing are not our own. When it comes to grief, we have to begin there. The things God does and the timing at which he does them don't always make sense. In fact, oftentimes, they don't. And we get stuck in this hurt and this pain. Jesus, why aren't you doing what I think you should be doing? Why aren't you healing what is hurting? Why aren't you fixing this mess? For Lazarus, we have an answer to that. But for most of us, we never know. We're left wondering, God, if only you were here, if only you had done what you do, if only this had changed, if only... We see Martha wondering the exact same thing in a few verses. In in verse 11, it says this. After saying these things, he said to them, being the disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples must be like my toddlers because this is what they heard. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. See, my kids have watched enough Daniel Tiger to know that when you're sick, rest is best. The best thing you should do when you're sick is sleep. 
So the disciples hear Jesus say that he's fallen asleep. Like, oh good, he's gonna get better. But then Jesus clarifies. Verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And I just wonder for the disciples the weight of those words. Two days ago, Jesus could have taken off. Two days ago, he could have gone to bring healing. He could have just spoken it from where he was. They'd seen him do this. And now their friend is dead. Jesus, he just seems to be acting so casual about it. Lazarus is dead. What? Then Jesus, he travels, and now it's been four days since Lazarus has died. Four days in the tomb, he goes there. And Martha comes up to him and says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If only you had done what I thought you would do, if only you cared as much as you care, if only I know it would have been okay, but instead he's dead. And Jesus responds with this. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now on initial reading, have you ever heard somebody try to comfort the grieving like this? It'll be okay. Like there's a future hope. Don't worry about it. Everything's better now. But Martha is not comforted by this future promise. In fact, this is what she says. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I know that eventually he will rise, but right now, right now he's dead. I know that eventually things will get better, but right now it's not. As I was reading this and thinking about this in the context of grief, the second thing comes to mind. When you are grieving or when someone else is grieving, know this, future hope does not diminish our present pain. Sometimes we're taught that if we have enough faith and if we believe and if then, this pain will go away. Martha is desperate. Jesus, we begged and we pleaded, we hoped you would fix this and now he's dead. But Jesus, he says, he will rise again. And all she hears is not that he's gonna rise like right now. No, in the future, of course I know that. But what does that mean for my pain today? And then Jesus, he continues. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Uh, Maybe you've heard this line before, I am the resurrection and the life. So what, Jesus? Lazarus is dead. I know that you're the life and the resurrection, but my spouse, my friend, my mother, they're dead. Who cares what's coming? Don't you see where we are right now? 
But for Jesus, the statement that he is the resurrection and the life is far more than a promise that eventually he'll bring resurrection and life. It's far more than a gift he's giving. You will have eternal life if only later. No, Jesus is speaking to the right now. I am this very life Lazarus needs. I am the hope for his future. I am the hope for his present. I am exactly who you need me to be. Being 2,000 years removed, it's easy to gloss over this. But for John, this was a really significant point. See, throughout John, in multiple different ways, he uses I am statements to declare that Jesus is more than just a man, but God himself. That Jesus is the great I am, the one who can do all things, who created everything, through whom life was given. And this is the final one of them. I am this life. This final sign, according to John, this is proof that Jesus is who he says he is and will do what he says he'll do. Then it continues, Jesus, he travels to go and and see Mary. He goes into the house where she's grieving. Mary comes out and greets him. And and this is what happens. First, a verse that's not on the screen. As he's traveling, uh, let's see, there's a bunch of Jews. It says in verse 31, when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And I almost skipped this verse in retelling this narrative, but I found something about grief here I really want to share. Mary and Martha were not alone. In fact, a whole bunch of people had come to them in their pain. For what purpose? To console them. Seems exactly like what they need, right? They're they're mourning the loss of a brother. They need people to come and bring comfort and hope. It'll be okay, don't worry. God's got this. It'll be fine. God's got a plan for your pain. It'll be okay. They came to console, but that's not what they needed. They needed much more than consolation. They needed something nobody else could give. Their brother, alive. Then it says this, she comes weeping at his feet, says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus In verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now that word that's used for deeply moved only shows up about five times in the New Testament. And so I did a little digging. What's the purpose? What does it mean that Jesus... Knowing his friend was going to die and knowing that his friend was dead and now being there and seeing the pain, what does it mean he was deeply moved? Well, I found a couple different definitions for this idea of being deeply moved. Deeply moved is uh, to be painfully moved. It's also to express indignation against to be deeply angry about something and angry for something. And there's another definition that I really like the picture of. 
This being deeply moved conveys a sense of snorting with anger, like a horse snorts when it's angry. Jesus, he sees her grief, he sees her pain, he sees their hurt, and he's deeply moved. Maybe painful grief, maybe deep anger at the reality of their loss. See, grief is really just that. Grief is a great loss we can't ever get back. And we always think grief has to be death, but we can grieve so many things that are not death. The loss of a relationship, the loss of time with people you love, the loss of a lifestyle and identity, the loss of all kinds of things we can grieve. But Jesus, he's deeply moved by their pain. I wonder how much of this movement was pain because he loved Lazarus or his anger about the reality of death. See, death for every one of us is the great equalizer. No matter how good we live, no matter how great our life is, no matter how much we're loved, you and I will die. But it wasn't supposed to be that way. Death should not define us, but it is the future for every one of us. And I wonder if Jesus' anger, snorting with anger, was in part the reality that this is the greatest of all evils and enemies. See, we in our culture sometimes sanitize death. We try to make death something it's not, so we bury people in private places, in beautiful cemeteries where everything's neatly kept and we don't talk about it. We keep people at a distance in somebody else's job. It's their job to care for the dead. We just grieve. But unfortunately, I think when we do this, we create a picture of what death is that's not true. We think death is just a good next step part of the journey, part of the process. We think death is natural and we should all just know it is what it is, but death is not natural. We were not made to die. We were made to have life and life to the full and life everlasting. It's only in the reality of this broken world that sin exists, not just your sin, but also mine and all of ours. Our sin still reigns, and because of that, death still happens to all of us. Jesus, he's deeply moved and greatly troubled. He snorts with anger. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then we get these two words. Jesus wept. And as I think about these words in the context of what's going on, there's so much more here than an easy verse to memorize. See, Jesus being filled with anger at the reality of death being filled with pain at the loss of his friend, even knowing what's to come, he weeps and he cries. He's deeply troubled by the situation. I think about those who came to console. 
I think about those and the, the kind words they may have offered, the kind gestures, let me bring you a meal, but I'm grieving too much to eat. It hurts too much to consume anything. Thanks for all this food I'll probably throw away. I think about those who came to console, who were sad, but were they deeply moved? See, for many of us, we think the right knowledge will help fix pain. Let me just teach you the truth. So somebody is sad and we say, it'll be okay. But right now it's not. Somebody is sad and we say, well, just let me tell you what God will do. But right now, that knowledge of what he will do doesn't change our reality. Jesus, he doesn't seek to offer solutions or answers or to fix their pain. He simply joins them in it. Jesus wept because he's not a God who's afraid of our emotion and our pain and our burden, but a God who's come near and taken on flesh to experience our pain and our suffering, to know our anguish and the agony of our loss. Jesus wept. See, we often, when people are grieving, we want to find solutions to take their grief away. But instead, what we need to do is to just join them. Because it's in the joining of the grief that comfort comes. This is why Jesus earlier said, weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. Just be present and acknowledge their pain. This is what comes after this. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? It wasn't Jesus' wonderful words or profound teaching or magical power. It wasn't any of the things he did. It was his weeping with those who weep that demonstrated his love for all to see. If you're grieving, invite somebody to sit with you. If somebody invites you into their pain, don't try to fix it or solve it or have the answers of their future hope. Simply sit with them and allow them to be in pain. That's how we show love. The story continues, but some of them could not, or could, some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? See, even as Jesus weeps, there are many who are confused. Why didn't he do something about this? Why didn't he fix this? Why didn't he save us from this pain? I don't know why God doesn't save us from all of our pain. I don't know why some people go through a greater amount of pain. The grief of family that's rejected you or loved ones who are dead or sickness that is prolonged. I don't know why. But I know what and I know who. The story continues. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone And Martha, the sister of the dead man, had seen enough zombie movies to say, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. 
This is long before the days of dry ice and, and refrigerators. A body in the sun for four days, not a pleasant thing. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Can you imagine the scene? The grief and the pain and the agony of the loss, all the things that were no longer. And Jesus has the audacity to say, open up the tomb, I want to see his body. Open it up. And they do. And Jesus speaks and Lazarus answers. Jesus speaks and outwalks this dead man, four days dead, which for Jewish culture was long enough to believe that his soul had left his body forever. He wasn't just kind of dead or just the illusion of it looked like he was dead. No, he was very much gone. Jesus speaks and Lazarus rises. I love this story, and I love this really simple verse. Jesus wept. Because the truth of the matter is, for most of us, our grief doesn't end this way. Most of us are not going to see our loved one come out of the grave. And even if we did, we would be terrified. Let's be honest. In fact, what happens next, the very next thing, the story I'm not going to go into, is the Jews who see it, those who are weeping with their weeping, trying to console them, see Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and begin to plot to kill him. This man is dangerous. If this man can conquer death, what else can he do? When he speaks, if the dead rise, what are the things that he's spoken will also be true. See, for most of us, we don't get the Lazarus moment where the loved one we've lost comes back. But we can still find in Jesus comfort. Comfort that tells us when he speaks and what he says, it will always be, even if his ways and his timing are not ours. Even if for now, the most we can do is sit in our pain and hopefully have others to sit with us. Even if for now, God's future hope doesn't take away our pain and all we have is this agony. What Jesus speaks will come true. And so we sit in our uncomfortable and miserable grief. We invite others in. We say, I am not okay, and that's okay. And there's this promise we can hold to in Revelation. These words spoken of Jesus that are not yet our reality says this. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. There will come a time like what Martha was first hoping for when the dead will rise and our grief will be no more. And I can't promise that between now and Christ's return, our tears will diminish. But I can promise he's faithful. And we can sit in this reality of a God deeply moved, snorting with anger, because death still wins. But what happens next? The reason we're here today is because death will not always win. This angry God who's deeply moved will give up his own life that we might live. That's our hope when we grieve that God knows our pain enough to do something about it and enough to do something for us when there's nothing we can do. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son. Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. Like Martha and Mary, so often we say, if only you had been here. If only you had done what we expected or we hoped. If only you had intervened. God, while we do not get, in most cases, the resurrection immediately that they received. Their brother returned. Their grief ended. God, we still sit and we weep. So we come before you today grateful that you are a God who weeps with us, who is deeply moved by our loss and our pain, moved to the point of doing something about it. That while death still seems to win, you have conquered the grave to give us life. May we find solace in this promise that the words you speak will come true even as now everything hurts. We thank you for who you are and what you're doing. May we find our life in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we continue today with our worship, we're going to collect an offering. Normally, oh, well, I can't even say normal anymore. It's been several months. In fact, it was like a year ago today, we had our first online-only service. Uh, So normally a year ago, we would pass buckets, but now we aren't. If you prefer to give with cash or check an offering, you can do so in the popcorn buckets as you leave. If you're somebody who prefers the digital age and the ability to give electronically and you want to partner with what God's doing in and through this place, you can go to thepointknox.com and you can click on what's no longer the little blue button. It's actually changed. It's now teal, but I'll tell you more about that later. Uh, Same platform, same everything. You can click on the teal button in the bottom corner and you can give online uh, however you give or whatever you give. Know this, we don't give to get his love, but because we already have it. But of course, before we get to Good Friday, we have all of Holy Week. If you're not 
uh, if you didn't grow up in the church and you're not familiar with what Holy Week is, that begins next Sunday with Palm Sunday, and it's uh, kind of going through the life of Jesus in that final week and the things he did. So we have prepared and are preparing some Holy Week at home bags, uh, things that we'll be delivering later this week or you can pick up next Sunday, um, opportunities to experience some of that week in your day-to-day living and what was that like to pause and reflect and pray? If you haven't yet signed up, good news, today is the last day to sign up for one, so you can still do that at thepointknox.com, and we will get you a bag this week or next Sunday. And now with that, uh, we have a few questions, I hope. We do. Actually, we've got some really good questions. So I'll just dive right in. Um, first one, in Psalms 23... It talks about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. What does that mean? Is the valley our life and we live with the shadow of death over us? How do we have hope? Great question. There's a lot of people who look at that as like, we know death is coming and so that's what overshadows us and that's all we can see. A few years back, as I was really diving into some of the Psalms, I read something, I forget where, about that one specifically, and it just kind of blew my whole understanding of this valley of the shadow of death. If you've ever hiked in the mountains when you're in the valleys, unless the sun is high enough, uh, you might see the light up ahead, but you're still walking in the shadow. You might see what you're going towards, but until the sun rises high enough, you're not in it. You don't feel that warmth. And, And what I read was that if we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, one shadows can't hurt you, so it's mostly just what we perceive, and two, there can only be a shadow where light is first shining. And that really just blew my mind in thinking about while we walk through pain and suffering and sorrow and death looms ahead, it's only because there's light at the end of the tunnel, there's light that is shining. Jesus himself, that can even help us to see right now is not the way it should be. Right now is not the way it always will be. Great transition. You didn't even know it. But speaking of that, um, can you explain the resurrection on the last day? Do we go to heaven when we die or are we waiting for that point and kind of in no man's land until then? Great question. Uh, Simple answer is I don't know. And to be fair, scripture says very little about what happens between when you die and the resurrection on the last day. Um, So almost everything you've ever heard about what happens after death is entirely speculation and not based on fact. What we do know as a fact is the Bible often uses the language Jesus used of falling asleep to describe that state in that time. We also know that everybody is at peace and at rest from their labors. They're no longer toiling and struggling and fighting. Beyond that, we don't really know. So some believe that uh, there's like this instantaneous you die and are like transported into the future and it happens. And some believe that you just sleep and you don't even know and then you just wake up and it happens. I don't really know. But I know this, if your loved ones have died, they are for the time being at peace. Whether it's in heaven or awaiting the resurrection, I'm not sure which. Excellent. Um... I personally think it should be a rule that anytime we talk about like death, revelation, it should be followed by a message on anxiety. So 
if cool. like we'll vote on that later, you know, cool. yeah. as a church. Also, if you didn't catch it a couple weeks ago, you can find the message on anxiety yeah. in Philippians. Yeah, I'll be hitting that up. Okay. Um, next question. Pastor Adam, is it biblically okay for men to style their hair in more feminine ways like a ponytail? Have you ever put your hair in a ponytail? Oh, of Thank course. You. Yeah. Um, is it biblically okay? That's a another heated question. Uh, my simple answer is yes. The law of the Old Testament is something that was written for a specific people in a certain time. And there are parts of that law that translate all the time, like do not murder. We would all say it's good to not go around killing people, right? And do not lie. And so when Jesus came to fulfill all of the law, that includes the ceremonial and the, the cultural laws like don't wear your hair up. Now we do see in the New Testament where it talks about like men shouldn't have long hair and women should keep their heads covered. And so what does that mean? Um, well, again, I think contextually uh, in the context where it says men shouldn't have long hair and women should remain silent and keep their hats on, it's speaking to a very specific problem and most importantly, the appearance that that would give to the culture around them. In our culture today, men having long hair doesn't really mean anything, at least not to my knowledge. If it does, please let me know. Um, so I think you're more than welcome to have long hair today. And if you put it in a ponytail, well, that's just smart because if you have long hair and you don't, it gets really hot and sweaty and gross. Uh, I'm also totally in favor. You can do a man bun if that suits you. I know that's controversial, but by all means, yeah, come as you are. Big controversy, yeah. Um, okay, there's only two more things. So uh, second to last, do we think that when death occurred that Jesus was actually mad like we get, even knowing what he knew about life ever laughter, ever after? Yeah, ever laughter. I like ever, that. Uh, life ever, ever laughter. laughter. That sounds great. <laughs> uh, I absolutely think Jesus was mad because death is not the way it's supposed to be. And he was there in the beginning. In fact, John starts his gospel that's by saying nothing was created that wasn't created through Jesus. Jesus knew how it was supposed to be, and he knew what it was supposed to be like. And I think he not only wept out of sadness, but also great anger. This is not what you were created for. I have something so much better for you. And I think that anger also in his love is what compelled him to the cross to say, I will do whatever it takes that this is not what continues to define you and be your future. Excellent. The last thing that was texted in, um, I'm going to prelude this by saying everyone like gaze towards the balcony a little bit. Yeah. Um, happy birthday, brother Mike. Hey, Mike. Happy right birthday. there. Happy birthday! Also, Ethan is right over here. We'll put him on the spot. Oh, it's and his fourteenth birthday. Happy birthday! So yeah, happy birthday! Man, balcony's a party. Y'all missing out up there. Well, one more thing from the balcony. Uh, you guys get the joy or discomfort—I'm not sure which—of <laughs> listening to God's word presented from me each week. But if you want something special this week, uh, we've got a guy named Adam Moore. If you don't know, just gaze this direction in the balcony, <laughs> right? He's like, oh, you're terrible. Welcome. <laughs> uh, Adam is actually going to seminary, and he's been accepted in the seminary, and will begin in the fall to be an intern here, learning how to be a pastor alongside me. And it's going to be really great. And so I like to throw people to the wolves, I mean, under the bus. I mean, I like to just give them a chance right <laughs> off the bat. And so this Wednesday, if you join us for our Wednesday night Lent service, the last Wednesday night service we're having in Lent, uh, you're going to hear a really, really compelling and awesome message from Adam. 
Not this one, that one. And if that's not confusing, we have to come up with a nickname. I'm not really sure. But uh, as always, let's end with this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.